This is the Sunday Catholic Word, a production of Catholic Answers, the only podcast to look at the Sunday Mass readings from an apologetics perspective. Hey, my friends, welcome to the Sunday Catholic Word, a podcast where we reflect on the upcoming Sunday Mass readings and pick out those details that are relevant for explaining and defending our Catholic faith. That's to say, the details that are relevant for doing apologetics. I'm Carlo Broussard, staff apologist and speaker for Catholic Answers and host for this podcast. In this episode, we're going to look at three details from this upcoming Sunday Mass readings that are relevant for apologetical discussions. Two of the three come from the Gospel, which is Matthew 5, 13-16, and the third comes from the second reading, which is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5. through Let's begin with the Gospel reading. Again, this is Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. But if salt loses its taste, with what can it be seasoned? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city set on a mountain cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and then put it under a bushel basket. It is set on a lampstand where it gives light to all in the house. Just so, your light must shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your heavenly Father. The first detail that has relevance for doing apologetics is Jesus' reference to the salt losing its taste and being thrown out. Notice Jesus applies the image of salt to his disciples, saying, you are the salt of the earth. He then proceeds to suggest that it's possible for salt to lose its flavor. And if salt loses its flavor, Jesus says, it's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. I would suggest that this text provides us with some biblical evidence that it's possible for a Christian to lose his salvation. And there are two lines of argumentation here. First, notice that Jesus identifies disciples as the salt in the metaphor. So, just as salt can lose what makes it worth something as a seasoning, namely its taste, so too a Christian can lose that which makes him worth something as a Christian. Now, what could that possibly be? The only thing that makes him worthy of the name Christian is the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, being in Christ and thus having the gift of salvation. Therefore, according to Jesus, it's possible that a Christian have the gift of salvation and then lose it, just like salt can have its taste and then lose it. Now, a second line of argumentation, just as salt can possibly no longer be good for anything but to be thrown out, so too a Christian can no longer be good for anything but to be thrown out. Because remember, Jesus identifies the Christian with the salt in the metaphor. This implies that a Christian once was good for something, but no longer is. In other words, he was a true Christian, just like salt was true salt, having its taste, but is no longer. And if a true Christian is no longer a true Christian, but then he no longer has that which comes along with being a true Christian, namely the gift of salvation. Hence, a true Christian, somebody who's born again, somebody who's initially justified, can lose the gift of salvation. And without the gift of salvation, such a person will no longer be numbered among those in the household of God, which 1 Timothy 3.15 says is the church, just like salt is thrown out and is no longer numbered among the household items. 
What else could Jesus mean by a Christian being thrown out? That seems to strongly suggest that a Christian will be outside of that which makes him a Christian, namely the gift of salvation, and being united to Christ in the mystical body of Christ. Now, this exegesis is relevant for doing apologetics because it disproves the claim among some Protestants that once we're saved, we're always saved, which is a doctrine often called eternal security. The bottom line is that Christians can lose what makes them Christian, just like salt can lose what makes it salt. And what makes a Christian a Christian is the gift of salvation. Eternal security, therefore, is false. The second detail in this gospel reading that's useful for doing apologetics is Jesus' statement that we as disciples of Jesus are the light of the world. And I'm so tempted right now to start singing, This little light of mine, I shall stop and spare you. (laughs) Within the context of this first reading, this reveals that the Christian community or the church constitutes the new Israel of God. Just as the Israel of God in the Old Testament was called to be the light of the world, as indicated in the first reading for this liturgy of the word here for the fifth Sunday of ordinary time, is Isaiah chapter 58, verses 7 through 10. So to the church in the New Testament, which Paul calls the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16, is to be the light of the world. So that's sort of the general meaning of the text. But for apologetic purposes, it comes into play when addressing several different objections. By the way, all of which I deal with in my new book, Meeting the Protestant Response, How to Answer Common Comebacks, to Catholic arguments. Yes, that is a plug for the book, and it is shameless. Go get the book. (laughs) All right, so for example, many Protestants argue that Peter can't be the rock of the church in Matthew 16, 18. Why? Because Jesus is said to be the foundation of the church in 1 Corinthians 3, 11. The assumption here is that what is said of one cannot be said of another. Since Jesus is the foundation, Peter cannot be foundation. That's the gist of the argument. But Jesus' revelation that we are the light of the world proves this assumption to be false. Consider that Jesus calls himself the light of the world in John chapter 9, verse 5. For Jesus, the, the metaphor of the light of the world can be applied to both he and Christians. So it's simply false to think that since the foundation metaphor is applied to Jesus in 1 Corinthians 3, 11, It cannot be applied to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. The metaphor, friends, can be applied to both. And so you can see how Jesus calling Christians the light of the world, calling himself the light of the world, comes into play in this apologetical conversation. Another objection where the light of the world reference comes into play is the objection that the saints can't be intercessors because Jesus is the one mediator (laughs) <laughs> because Jesus is the one mediator between God and man there in 1 Timothy 2.5. Like the previous objection, the assumption here is that what is said of one cannot be said of another. Since Jesus is the one intercessor, saints in heaven cannot be intercessors. But again, this assumption is false, given that Jesus calls himself the light of the world and us as Christians. Therefore, the saints in heaven can be intercessors, even though Jesus is the one mediator or intercessor. And of course, the whole theological explanation of that is because we're in Jesus as members of his mystical body. So whatever intercession we engage in, it is only in, through, and with 
and because of Jesus's unique intercession. So rather than taking away from the glory of Jesus's unique intercession, our intercession among members of the mystical body of Christ is a manifestation of that unique intercession. There's yet another objection directed at Peter's papal role where this information about Christians being the light of the world comes into play. In Luke 22, 32, Jesus tells Peter to strengthen your brethren. Now, as I argue in my book, Meeting the Protestant Response, many Catholics infer from this command Peter's papal ministry. But some Protestants make a comeback here, and they counter that the terminology of strengthening is used elsewhere in the New Testament. The implication being that Peter strengthens just like everybody else. There's really nothing significant here. This being the case, it's argued that there's no basis for reading papal prerogatives into this passage in Luke 22:32. But of course, the assumption here is that if a word or motif or motif is used for two people, it must mean the same thing for both of them. They must be equal with regard to that word or motif. But Jesus' reference to Christians as the light of the world here, knowing that he calls himself the light of the world, proves this assumption to be false. Surely Christians are not equal to Jesus in being the light of the world. So you can have the same motif or metaphor being applied to two people and it not follow from that that the two people are equal with regard to that motif or theme. So, going back to Peter. Yes, Jesus, uh, yes, many others are said to strengthen others, but just because the same motif is used for Peter and others, it doesn't mean that they're equal with regard to that motif or that theme. Peter strengthens in a unique way given the context of that passage in Luke twenty-two thirty-two. Check out my book, Meeting the Protestant Response, for further details. Now, this same assumption is found in the objection fired at the Catholic appeal to John 21, 15 through 17 where Jesus gives Peter the command to feed and shepherd his sheep. Many Catholics infer, as probably those of you who are listening right now know, Catholics infer from this shepherding command in John 21, 15 through 17, that Peter is the universal or lead shepherd for Christ's flock here on earth. But some Protestants counter and say that others have the role of shepherding too, both apostles and those of lower rank, such as the presbyters in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. If Christ wants others to be shepherds, so it's argued, well, then Peter's commission to shepherd Christ's flock doesn't make him a unique leader. Again, the assumption here is that if an idea is used for multiple people, well, then they must be equal with regard to that idea. But given Jesus' teaching that both he and Christians are the light of the world, this assumption is proven false. Jesus' unique role as being the light of the world is not threatened by Christians being the light of the world. They are not equal. One is below the other, namely us being the light of the world is below Jesus. But we do not threaten Jesus' unique role. The reason is that Christians can be the light of the world if and only if they are in Christ. But the point here is that we are not equal, even though the same motif is applied to both. All right, let's now move to the second reading, which again comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through Five And here's what we read. Paul writes this, When I came to you, brothers, proclaiming the mystery of God, I did not come with sublimity of words or of wisdom, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my message and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of spirit and power, 
so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Notice Paul's de-emphasis here on human wisdom. It might seem that it might seem that Paul is rejecting the good of philosophy, thereby providing evidence for the heresy of fideism, the belief that reason is so corrupt after the fall that we can only arrive at true knowledge of God through divine revelation. There are a few things that we can say in response here. First, if Paul truly meant to reject philosophy as a legitimate means of arriving at truth, and more in particular the truth about God, well then he would be contradicting himself. Consider, for example, Romans 1.20, where Paul writes this, Ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. To perceive God's eternal power and deity through created things is to perceive divinity through reason alone. Paul, therefore, affirms that reason, without the aid of divine revelation, can arrive at some true knowledge of God. So lest we say that Paul is contradicting himself in 1 Corinthians, contradicting himself in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, we must conclude that Paul is not rejecting philosophy in that text in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, the second reading for this upcoming liturgy of the word. Second response, Paul's words only prove that he didn't want to use philosophy when evangelizing the Corinthians. He makes this explicit when he writes in verse 2, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you. Not wanting to use human wisdom with the Corinthians doesn't mean that Paul thinks human wisdom should be excluded, absolutely speaking. But the question arises, well, why would Paul choose to avoid human wisdom for the Corinthians? What Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, begins to shed some light. He writes this, But I, brethren, could not address you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. It's clear from this that it was the Corinthian spiritual immaturity that led Paul to avoid human wisdom and stick to a demonstration of spirit and power. That's what they needed, so that's what Paul gave them. But one might ask, well, what was the nature of their immaturity? Well, we get a hint in 1 Corinthians 3.19. Paul writes this, For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will thwart. According to St. Thomas Aquinas in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, the wisdom of the wise here doesn't refer to wisdom absolutely speaking. Rather, it refers to the wisdom that the wise of this world have invented for themselves against the true wisdom of God. In the words of James, in James 3.15, this wisdom is not such as comes down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. It's a wisdom whereby the wise of this world esteem themselves prudent in earthly or worldly affairs and cling to the goods of this life. And this tendency to live for worldly affairs alone drives our attempts to explain the world in terms of earthly things alone. Just as we tend to live only for the goods of this world, which would be this worldly, devilish, unspiritual, earthly wisdom, we tend to explain the world only in terms of the things in this world, restricting, confining, limiting our explanations to natural causes 
and not allowing recourse to a transcendent reality or the possible light of divine revelation. This is what Aquinas means when he says in his when he says in the commentary that I mentioned before, on account of the vanity of his heart, man wandered from the right path of divine knowledge. That's from his First Corinthians lecture one through three. According to Dominican priest Father Thomas Joseph White in his 2014 Nova et Vetera, that's the journal title, in his article entitled St. Thomas Aquinas and the Wisdom of the Cross, it's this mystery of the human condition that the wisdom of God in the crucified Christ heals. Father White writes, opening reason up to an authentic horizon of intellectual universality. In the words of Aquinas, he says, God brought believers to a saving knowledge of himself by other things, which are not found in the natures of creatures. So St. Paul is simply employing a pedagogy here, right? A teacher who recognizes his students are missing the point if he wants them to learn will change track and use another example or explanation to get the point across. And this is exactly what Paul had to do with the Corinthians. He recognized that they were having a hard time understanding the meaning of their lives and the world with the language of nature, with the language of philosophy. And so consequently, Paul had to employ the language of the cross to convey that meaning. So the appeal to the cross in contrast to human wisdom was driven by pedagogical needs, the need to communicate to these Corinthian people who, as Paul says, were spiritually immature and needed to be fed with milk. Paul could not give them the lofty words of wisdom because they were not properly disposed to receive it. As that famous principle articulated by Aquinas says, uh, the receiver can only receive according to the mode, a thing can only be received according to the mode of the receiver. And that's the principle that Paul is operating on here. So his appeal to the crucified cross, crucified Christ, in no way negates the importance of philosophy. And human wisdom, wisdom that we can arrive at by reason alone without the aid of divine revelation. So Paul is not squashing the use of philosophy. He's simply using the, the, the message of the cross for a particular people. And of course, we never want to exclude the message of the cross, but sometimes the philosophy will be helpful and needed given certain circumstances. And I would even argue that the philosophy is nature to establish a foundation upon which we can begin to intelligibly make sense of the divine revelation given to us through the death of Jesus's uh, sacrifice on the cross. Through the death of Jesus on the cross. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> I'll be quiet now, my friends. That does it for this episode of the Sunday Catholic Word. We're now equipped with some tools to engage in conversations about the doctrine of eternal security, and how Jesus' statement that we are the light of the world can be used in response to a variety of objections that deal with ideas or motifs being used for more than one person, and the good and limitations of human philosophy. Thank you so much for subscribing to the podcast. Please be sure to tell your friends about it and invite them to subscribe as well. I hope you have a great fifth Sunday of Ordinary Time. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Sunday Catholic Word. Find more great shows by visiting catholicanswerspodcasts.com or just search for Catholic Answers wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.